These days, the, uh, the terms uh, pious or piety are often associated with negative connotations. You recall back in the days of COVID that uh, some uh, self-appointed COVID rule keeper uh, got the, the title Karen, and which is kind of an insult to all the wonderful Karens out there. But the Karen was always going to make sure you had on your mask. The Karen was going to make sure you cleaned your surfaces. The Karen was going to make sure you kept six feet away and, uh, and that sort of thing. Ended up finding out most of that stuff was worthless anyway. Uh, but, but that's the way a lot of people view this term pious or piety. But that is a more of a recent negative development. In most of church history, piety, piousness, uh, was very much revered. Indeed, the goal of Christians. Listen to the, the, the uh, definition of the adjective pious. It is marked by showing reverence for deity and devotion to divine worship. Marked by conspicuous faith. Sacred or religious as distinct from the profane or secular, showing loyal reverence marked by self-conscious virtue. Sentiments of pious are virtuous, constant, dedicated, devoted, devout, faithful, good, loyal, steadfast, true, and reverent. If you look at the definition, the true definition of pious or piety it should be the thing you crave for as a Christian. Because for the Christian, there's nothing they want more than to be pleasing to God. And you will not fulfill that desire without a reverent piety about your life. Blaise Pascal said this, The serene, silent beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world next to the might of God. In our passage today in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10, we're going to look at four graces of a pious Christian. We're going to be looking at love, faith, prayer, and a fellowship. And my hope is that as we look at those graces, we will embrace those graces all the more and that we will devote ourselves to leaving and living a pious life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and unlock this wonderful passage that the Lord has for us this morning. Father, we do come before you, God. We have already confessed our sins. And we thank God that uh, we understand, according to Scripture, that Christ died for those sins, for those who are of His. And that we can now move forward into Your Holy Word, confident that our sins are forgiven. Confident that we have a Savior. Confident that we have the Holy Spirit within us. And that we'll take the Word of God and we'll apply it to our hearts so that we can live holy lights. As much as we seem to disappoint You at times, Lord, we also know there are times when we absolutely delight You as we walk in a pious manner. God, help us to be pious Christians. Help us to live such a life as to bring that wonderful definition of piety back into a positive view on this planet. Let us live those silent beauty of a holy life and help us to learn from how to do that from this passage today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. You might find your home group help insert of assistance to you as we break down basically the four different graces of a pious Christian that we find in this particular passage. On the reverse side of the outline, you also find some questions that might be of assistance for you to help you in your home group or also just with your personal devotions uh, this come, or family devotions this coming week that might help you. Uh, you, know, you don't want to just leave the sermon. You want to kind of meditate upon the sermon all during the week, and hopefully that will assist you in so doing. But let's look at 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read the entire passage and then we'll look at the various components that the Lord might have for us this morning. 1 Thessalonians 3, 
uh, verses 6 through 10, God says, Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about uh, through your faith. And now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which he rejoiced before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. The first of the four graces we're going to look at is our, 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 the grace of faith, of course, which is uh, something we emphasize a considerable amount uh, here at Christ Reformed Church because Scripture emphasizes that. And, and I've kind of broken some of the verses down in various parts. It's not necessarily linear here. So we see faith in verses 6a uh, and verse... Uh, seven and eight here. But notice that, uh, that there's two principles here. Two of these principles, two of these graces are vertical in that they are directed more towards God. Two of them are horizontal in that they're directed more towards the community of God, the church of Jesus Christ here. So this is one of those vertical f- focus. We have faith towards God here. Uh, Paul starts off by saying, but now that Timothy has come t- uh, from you, uh, the background here, of course, relates to this, uh, relates to the report from Timothy. Paul could not get to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Uh, he was concerned about the, the, the welfare of the Thessalonican church because it was a young church. It was uh, in as many ways an inexperienced church and persecution had resulted to the point that Paul had to leave in order to keep the church safe. And he's been thwarted in his attempts to get back. But he was able to send Timothy and Timothy was there. And to, as we found out from earlier in chapter three, for two reasons, to find out about their faith and to strengthen and encourage them in the faith. So this whole principle of faith, he's just wondering, Paul is wondering, are they keeping the faith? Are they still walking in, uh, in a manner that's worthy of the great calling that they have? Are they still practicing Christians? Is the church still uh, committed to the word of God? And he's returned from this mission and he's given Paul this wonderful news here that yes, they are. You know, it's so wonderful. Again, after going through 2 Corinthians for the last year and all the troubles of that church, isn't it wonderful that Paul has a church that's really functional, that's really worshiping him? Uh, not him, Paul, but him, God, that's really uh, respecting the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So Paul is just overjoyed. He can hardly contain himself. It's almost as if Timothy comes back this new and Paul just immediately grabs a bunch of papyrus and a pen and just starts firing off uh, this particular letter. He says he's brought back good news here. Uh, He is just so grateful to be relieved uh, of the the burden that he had and his concern. And uh, and, uh, particularly about their faith and their love. And those two are combined so often with the Apostle Paul, faith and love. Again, faith uh, uh, towards God, love towards God, but also love towards the fellow man. It's sort of a constant coupling with Paul. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction, of any instruction that we have here or any other Christian church, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So if you just, if you just approach a, a Christian church, Sunday school, a sermon, a Bible study, a lesson, just to build your philosophical understanding of the Trinity, uh, you're, you're kind of missing the point. The goal is always love with a good conscience and a sincere faith. Galatians 5, chapter 6, For in Christ Jesus there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, 
that doesn't mean anything but faith working through love. Faith working through love. John Calvin said this, in these two words, he comprehends briefly the entire sum of true piety. If, if there's four different graces here, but if you only grab hold of these first two, the rest of them will come. And those that are not necessarily included in this particular passage. So the, 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 what he's finding out here is that these Thessalonians, that they were of that parable of the parable of the sower. They are, were of those seeds that went into the good so, soil. And they're just bearing fruit and bearing fruit, bearing fruit, despite the fact that they have had every possible disadvantage uh, that was given to them. Faith and love, faith and love, faith and love. Uh, If you get that right, everything else sort of falls into place here. And he goes on to say, for this reason, brethren, in all our distresses and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Now, again, by definition, faith has to have an object, right? Who do we have our faith in? What do we have our faith in. You see this in Hollywood all the time. You know, you'll have some epic sports uh, situation going on or some uh, epic uh, 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 confrontation within government or battle or something like that. And people say, you just have to believe. You just have to believe. Believe in what? In Hollywood, it certainly isn't Jesus, right? But but faith has to have an object. So how do you find out about what that object is? Listen, almost all the world worships, almost all cultures understand that there is some sort of supreme deity out there. You just can't look at nature without seeing that. You have to really kind of subdue the idea that there was a divine creator, one of beauty and of order that created all this. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to have a faith in this mush creator God that's out there. That's general revelation, but you have to have specific revelation. You have to be word-oriented. You have to have Holy Scripture to know what is the object of our faith. So it's absolutely essential. You can never divorce faith from what the Bible has to say. Romans 10 says this, For who will ever call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he asked the question, How will they then call on him who they've not believed? And how will they uh, believe in him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And then this, the, 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 the summary point here. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's why this church is devoted to living and dying on the Bible. Living and dying on Holy Scripture. Our denomination is devoted to living and dying on Holy Scripture. The very symbol of our denomination is an open book. And so many wonderful, old, amazing, uh, used to be godly, pious Mainline denominations have failed and they've, dis- they've discarded the Holy Scriptures. They no longer fear God and they become religious social clubs. And it's the death of faith when you do that, when you, when you forget what the Scriptures tell us and how it informs our faith. You know, we're, we're about, this is Reformation Month, we're going to celebrate the Reformation on October 30th. And we think about the doctrine that came out of the Reformation, the five solas of the Reformation. We have those embossed, of course, on the front door of this church. And the different Sunday school classes are named for the different solas of the church. But one of the most radical things that Martin Luther did was he translated the scriptures from Latin into German, into the vernacular. Now, people had done that before and they killed him. 
Martin Luther had the protection of his government, so he was able to succeed in that. And it used to be you would go into a medieval church, there would be one Bible probably in the entire town, and that Bible would have a chain on it. And you could go and read that Bible, but it had to stay in that church, and the chain was there to keep it from, from being stolen. In a sense, what Martin Luther did by translating the Latin scriptures into German was breaking that chain. And with a combination of the printing press that was coming out, the movable type press uh, that, was, uh, that had been in, in operation at that point in time, it gave people access to God's holy word. So as people started reading the Bible, they said, no, how come I've been going to church all my life and I've never heard this? How come they got all these rules and regulations and things they're telling me to do and not do, but none of that's anywhere in Scripture? Matter of fact, Christianity is pretty darn simple. And salvation is of grace, not by works, not by sacraments, it's by grace. And that's really, he, he basically, he let out a flood of knowledge and of faith that could not be taken back in. And the world was forever changed as a result of that. John, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. If you don't have the Bible, you cannot have right kind of faith. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, you cannot find even one Christian on this earth who has developed into strength of wisdom and witness in the Lord who has attained it by any other means than study and meditation on God's word. It's just absolutely essential. And if you're relying just on Sunday to do that, you will fail. You will absolutely fail. You must take advantage and read the Bible on your own. You must read good Christian books. You must be in Christian fellowship. You need to go to Bible studies. So Paul praises their faith, and he praises them as a remedy of the distress and the affliction that they have been under. And this distress and affliction probably comes as a result of his concern for the Thessalonian church here. And, you know, here you got Paul. I mean, if there was ever a together Christian, it's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul and Matthew Newell. Those two are the ones that come to mind when we think of a together Christian, right? That, yeah, never right. <laughs> Uh, to, I mean, he just had it together. Why would the Apostle Paul ever struggle distress? Why would he ever struggle with affliction? Because he is human. For those of you who are occasionally distressed, for those of you who feel afflicted, you're in good company here. You're in good company. But he's not worrying about his bank account. He's not worrying about his health. He's worrying about others. And again, this is such a contrast uh, from the, the Corinthian church. Uh, in in, in the 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Paul, uh, Paul uh, you know, it reminds the Corinthians, they were just so worldly, they were so fashionist, they were so, they were so, in, they would follow any false teacher just left and right. Uh, and they kind of lived out that, at least back in my day, uh, when I was a teenager, there was this bumper sticker in a lot of the cars that, that said this, the one that dies with the most toys wins. That was a Corinthian kind of notion. The, the one that dies with the most toys wins. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, that's not how, how life is at all. What he says here, he says, now, because we know that you're doing well, now we really live. Paul is now, it's like life, life and everything I've done is worth it. I am now enjoying life to the fullest because you are walking in faith. John said in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. 
But the, uh, and the reason why he feels that way, like a father does to a child that he's proud of, the reason why he feels that way is because they, they, they reciprocated. He showed them faith and he, he introduced the faith to them. They, he, they showed him love. They supported him. Uh, they fought for him. They, they had his back, in other words, as opposed to the Corinthians that he was always having to, to struggle with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, the, uh, the, if the dead are not raised, uh, let us eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. Because that's their attitude here. And, and uh, they continued to cause him stress and concern. And he, just ne he never knew where he stood with their, in terms of their relationship. But he says here, there's a qualifier here, that if you stand firm in the Lord. In other words, he really lives. He's enjoying life to the fullest. He realizes everything that he's done is worth it. But there's a qualifier. You've got to keep standing firm. Christianity, to be a pious Christian, it's not like you just arrive one day. Yep, I became a pious Christian last Thursday. I am there. Come and ask me how I, how I Let me write a book about it. It's an effort every day, every day, every day. You give up that constant standing firm and you will be a target of the devil. That idea of standing firm is a military turn to say not to retreat against the face of an attack. Uh, so he is he, he he knows that he's what he's trying to encourage you is that a Christian only arrives when he passes into glory. When we die, we'll get our rest. When we die, we'll get pure happiness until then. It's going to be we're doing a, a rear guard action. We are fighting against a very aggressive enemy. If you don't believe me, turn on the news today. And find out what's going on. You are, your views and the way you live your life are diametrically opposed to most of the culture. Most of the culture. And as the culture continues to go down, they will continue to stand firm against Christianity. But we are those who have to stand firm against that and the effects that it has upon us. So... Um, you know, he tells the same thing later on to the, the same church in 2 Thessalonians. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. You know, I got saved in the early 1980s, and a lot of the churches back then were rebelling against traditional Christianity, the traditional uh, 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 services, the traditional views, traditional doctrines. They did not emphasize church doctrines. They did not church emphasize church history. It was kind of like the churches have failed. We're going to start over again. Uh, and really, that was a terrible mistake because there are bad traditions out there. The Reformation fought against bad traditions in the church, but there are some excellent traditions out there that are indispensable to the Christian life. And, and you need to understand those traditions. Paul says you got to stand firm with those traditions and with the truth that he taught them. So you need to learn the Westminster Confession of Faith. You need to know these hymns. Uh, you, need to, you need to be praying Holy Scripture. You need to study church history and understand uh, the, the, fa the fact that we stand on the shoulders uh, of giants. Now, of course, if one of the things here that with faith that obedience is also assumed here... You know, you see this principle in James chapter 2, right? But someone will say to me, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons ought to believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's absolutely worthless. You probably almost weekly come in contact with people who claim the title of Christian and yet never go to church. Claim the title of Christian, but live a life completely contrary to that. 
uh, because they're dis they're, because they're not Muslim or Buddhist. They are therefore Christian. This is a this is a pandemic in the South, isn't it? Well, I mean, you're born Christian in the South in a lot of people's mindset. But there there is something Christianity ought to be obvious, ought to be apparent. If you're not devoted to a church, if you are not practicing Christianity, you're just not a Christian. And that's a, that's a tough wake-up call for a lot of people. But, uh, but we need an honest assessment here. Are you really a Christian or are you just claiming that title? You know, uh, one, of the, one of the things that we make sure that we are Christians is we are devoted to the, to the Scriptures, the Apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread prayer. Uh, we're devoted to a church. We're also devoted to understanding the principles on our own. Again, if you're dependent on Sunday, you're in trouble. This is an opportunity for me to kind of plug. An, uh, a book. And again, this is not really a commercial because we don't make any money off this. But if you want good tradition, if you want a scripture that's really, really just uh, pregnant with meaning and organized in a way that's going to be assistance, I would commend to you this little book here, this uh, volume, Be Thou My Vision. It's a liturgy for daily worship. And, uh, and it's, it, I kind of like it because I've had to go to Kindle because I've run out of book space. This is uh, just beautiful. It's in a binder. I was given this by a chaplain, Chris Wisdom. It's got three ribbons, so you can keep your place on the day, also on the catechisms. But it goes through. It has, like, it's really like a little church service for your home. And you go through a call to worship, you go to a prayer of confession, you go to a prayer of adoration, you go through a scripture lesson, you can look at one of the, some of the creeds, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just a great way to, to immerse yourselves in the essence of reform worship. You don't have to wait till Sunday, you can do this. This really is in some ways a daily Sunday service for you, for you to have devotions on yourself or have family devotions at home. And I would commend this. We, we bought four of these. They're on the shelf out there. I think they're $26. This is mine. Don't take it. Uh, Nancy will wrestle you to the ground if you try to take it. Uh, but it's very, very helpful. And, and it's just meaty. Matter of fact, uh, two of the, the, uh, the teachers at New Covenant School that we have here are starting off every school day reading through this passage. Uh, and, uh, and it's just got content after content after content. There's not a time we don't read through this. We just, we're just at hit by the, by the wonders uh, of, of good, good scriptural understanding. So that's faith. You've got to inform your faith. You need, to have, uh, you need to work on doing that. Then we have this principle of love. And those two, of course, are, com are combined, but I want to break it out here. And he says here, love, um, verse uh, 6b, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Notice there's an emotional quality here. This is the horizontal focus uh, that we're supposed to have towards other men here. He says that, uh, that, that Timothy brought him the good news of your faith and the love, and that good news idea comes from the same uh, word where we get our term gospel here. And he says here that you always think kindly of us. That idea of thinking kindly, some, some uh, translations say we have... Have, you have pleasant memories of us, pleasant memories of us. And you think about what are some of those pleasant memories? It's, it's, it's times when you have just good times of fellowship with family and of friends. You know, sometimes maybe an old picture from Facebook Christmas would show up. Or I think about uh, getting with a couple of the men of the church uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. We just laughed for an hour. We just laugh for an hour. Every time I think back about that, I just, I just start smiling because we had pleasant memories. Well, that's the, that's the thought they had towards Paul. So as these false teachers started coming in and say, oh, that apostle Paul, he could care less about you. The guy left, you left you here, right? And here we are persecuting you, and where's Paul, right? Uh, and and they, wouldn't, they would have none of it. They would have none of it. They, no, Paul taught us the way. Paul had faith. Paul was an excellent example. We have pleasant memories of Paul, and this meant so much to him. 
to, to the Apostle Paul. And he was just absolutely thrilled to know that they still loved him. Again, when the love for the apostle was so often called into questions with churches like the, the one uh, in Corinth there. Uh, he, uh, and, he, and, and it's wonderful, too, because if, if you've ever been in ministry, and we have some pastors here, pastors so often have to deal with the negative. You know, someone's having a problem and it's always the church's fault. Sometimes it is the church's fault. We recognize that. But, but, but Paul is just not having to deal with any of the negative here. They just love them, and they're just devoted to them. Uh, recently got a text. Uh, some One of the members of our church wanted to get together with Nancy and myself, and, and she wrote in the text, I, can we get together and talk? There's not a problem with the church. There's nothing negative. You know, <laughs> kind of, thank you. You know, so I don't have to sit there and think, what's she going to do, you know, for a week? I just thought that was, a, that was because she has pleasant memories of the church. She has pleasant memories uh, of us here. So uh, Francis Finanon said this, uh, true piety enlarges the heart. It's simple, free, and attractive. When you're walking in the spirit, love is much more natural. It's still an action, though. Now, this is agape love. This is the kind of self-sacrificing love. This is not the romantic, natural kind of affections that you have or the affections that a parent has for a child. This is, uh, this is love that takes effort. But what happens when you take effort in love? The affections come, don't they? The emotions come uh, later on here. So there's just this beautiful, tender picture here. And you can just kind of feel the, the compassion that they have, one another, the love that they have one another. Again, as in contrast uh, with the Apostle Paul, who said that he was depressed because of his relationship with the Corinthian church here. And he longs to see us just as long as we see to you. There's just there's nothing stiff about the Apostle Paul's ministry. I had a conversation with some of the people in the church last night that there are some churches, even some churches like ours, that just sometimes they just come off as cold. You know, it's all about doctrine, which is good, but, but it's losing that love quality. You know, you've got to have truth, but you've got to have it also in the context of love. And we really have to work at that. It's difficult for us to do that. We are so isolated in our own homes, in our suburban neighborhoods, and, and we have to really work on having community where we can express this love because love has to have an object as well, doesn't it? This is one of my concerns with it. There's so much, I think Seacoast Church started this whole effort, but there's so many churches, even some good churches, that do this video pastor thing where the pastor's not actually there on Sundays, uh, but they show a video or even in the high-tech churches, a hologram of the pastor uh, when he's preaching and everything. But that pastor's never been to that church. They're satellite churches and they're bringing in a satellite image of the pastor. And, and, and the reason why that concerns me is not that it couldn't be good teaching and that you couldn't learn something, but there's, lack, there's no relational quality. It's hard to hug a hologram. And, the, and w for me, one of the things that draws me closer to you is to preach to you and just to pour out my heart and to, and to share with you what the Lord has put on my heart and what the Word says every week. And it, it makes a connection between us that's just lost if you do it in a hologram. There, there, it, it works in that it grows churches and allows you to do satellites and stuff, but it's really kind of dangerous in a lot of ways because you almost end up with a celebrity status of a pastor who doesn't even know you. Who, who, who has not gotten together with you, has not broken bread. You've never had him serve communion to you. He hasn't baptized your, your, you or your children and that kind of thing. So it, 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 there's a dangerous, perhaps a danger that we're going to lose this love quality with some of the technology that we have here. 
Now we go on to prayer. Of course, all of these are connected here. Paul says in verses 9 and 10a, For what thanks can we render to God? For you can return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. And as night and day, we keep praying most earnestly. Again, this is a vertical focus towards God, but he's praying horizontally towards others. The the, the faith is demonstrated in prayer. He's asking kind of a rhetorical question here. For what thanks can we render to God? Uh, You can't. I mean, uh, he is just so overwhelmed by how well the church is doing, he just can't even come up with the words here of how he might be able to express uh, what God's doing. And notice this, he gives God the credit for growing the church, both spiritually and also, I suppose, in numbers as well. This goes back again to 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, Paul watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Could he emphasize the fact that God causes the growth anymore? So what he says, sees, even with the newness and the immaturity of the Thessalonian church, God is faithful. God is causing the growth. And Paul is just overwhelmed by this. He is just absolutely overwhelmed by this. He, uh, like uh, one, one co- commentator says, he just keeps throwing out clauses after clause because he, just, he is just so overwhelmed by how excited he is. He, he, uh, and he goes on to say, for the joy which we rejoice before our God on your account, he's just absolutely overwhelmed with thankfulness. He's, in a sense, he's jumping for joy. I, 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 every time I was thinking about this and, and focusing on this, I kept thinking about uh, an opportunity uh, a, a couple of months ago where I had some donuts and I got to take them to the Rundolph, Rundorf household. They were primarily for the children, uh, and, but, but Ellen was so excited, she was just literally jumping up and down in the hallway about these donuts. Uh, so when we think about j- jump for joy, we now call that a Rundolph. Uh, because it's just, I mean, I just love that expression of just joy. This is what Paul's doing right now. This is what we need to do for each other. When you heard that two of our members got pregnant this week, or we're going to have babies this week, uh, when one got engaged, you know, we should just be jumping for joy. We should rejoice with those who rejoice. That's almost harder sometimes than to weep with those who weep, is it not? So there ought to be a joy, and sometimes we're afraid of that. We're afraid to express ourselves. We're afraid to express joy because we know the hurt's going to come later on. Let the hurt come. You showing joy now is not going to keep the hurt from coming tomorrow. So enjoy the time now and celebrate with those who are celebrating here. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's just, he's just absolutely overwhelmed with how well the church is doing. And I kept thinking about this, and I thought, you're never closer to God than when you were expressing gratitude to him. It is hard for you to be a grousing, bitter person. It's hard for you to be discontented with life when you are just pouring out your heart in gratitude. You really, when you, when you pray to the Lord, too many of us, especially those of us who are sensitive in the spirit, we end up spending so much time on confession, and then we hardly have time to get to the other stuff. We, maybe we should start with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for all this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. For the breath that I have for living in a free nation, for the church that I have, for being chosen, for being one of your elect, to be adopted into your family, to give us the Bible. You know, all the things. If you study church history, you, it's overwhelming the resources we have, the blessings that we have. So the, the way to true joy, the way to be happy, and the way that's going to really inform your prayers is to start off with a heart of thanksgiving. 
He says here, as night and day, we pray most earnestly. Constant and fervent were uh, Paul's prayers. The great Puritan writer Thomas Watson says this, faith is to prayer what the feather is to the arrow. You ever shot an arrow without a feather? It just goes all over the place. But the feathers help direct it. And, 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 and our prayers are directed by faith. We are recognizing that God is overall. He cares for all. He is the one that causes the growth. So our prayers are there. And it's absolutely essential. We, we tend to neglect prayer. Uh, or we think we, we, we're daydreaming and we call that prayer. Uh, we need to have corporate prayer. Or we need to have personal prayer. Ian Bounds, the Christian author, says this. The vital forces of piety are withered and dead in a prayerless life. The life of the individual believer is a personal salvation, personal Christian graces have their being, bloom, and fruitage in prayer. And then finally, we see here a fellowship here. You see that in verses 6b and 10b. He's longing to see you just as we long to see you, that we may see your face and be complete uh, and complete what's lacking in your faith here. Again, he got a horizontal focus here. Their love is demonstrated and that faith is recognized uh, and the prayer is extended with our Christian fellowship. Now, y'all, this is important because people kind of neglect fellowship in some ways. In some ways it's natural, but in many ways it's not. Uh, and you have to be very deliberate about fellowship. Our church deliberately tries to have functions to encourage fellowship, even something as small as having coffee out there. Uh, uh, that's, that's part of what we're trying to do when we, we try to encourage fellowship, the numerous meals that we have together, the home groups and that kind of thing. But we're fighting against a, a culture that really doesn't want it. They say they do, but they're not willing to put up with the effort that you have to put up with to enjoy true Christian fellowship. Some years ago, I was um, talking to a, an older person uh, uh, and uh, a, a Christian, and I was telling him about, you know, uh, that we were going to start home groups because we needed more fellowship. And he literally went, fellowship. Just sort of scorned it. As that's one of those low-level Christian activities. You don't really need that when you've got doctrine and truth and everything else. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And let me just challenge the older amongst you. At least the, the older I get, the more introverted I become. And I don't know if that's just me or the case in general, but it takes more effort when you get older to go out to, to, to make a covered dish, uh, to take, go, go to the trouble to meet somebody, to not stay in your little group and everything. But we cannot have true, vibrant fellowship in this church if the older people all leave. Or they don't come to the fellowship meals and they ignore going to home group or whatever it might be. We need everybody. Everybody. Paul says that the older women are to teach the old, younger, younger women. How are we going to do that if we don't have older women that are participating in things? So this is one of those uncomfortable challenges. But we need to ask ourselves, okay, we got faith. We got love. We certainly got prayer. But do you really have fellowship? Are you really living together as a family? Do you, do you know the names of these visitors? Do you know the names of these new members that are coming into the church? Am I, am I going to the effort to help them feel welcome and that sort of thing? Or do I just sort of walk into church and, and get my place and think this is for me and I'm, just gonna, I'm trying to protect myself uh, from the influences of others? Proverbs 13, 20 says this, he who walks with wise men will be, will be wise. There is a community. And even uh, scripture says that if you, ne if you neglect fellowship, you're just seeking your own, your own good. You, you have to fight against that tendency to try to avoid 
the trouble of being around other people. Is your heart going to get broken? Yeah. Is, your, is it inconvenient? Yeah. Is it God's will for your life? Yeah. It is. It is. Fellowship is wonderful. It's also a challenge sometimes. Because, and, but notice here, there's an emotional longing that the Apostle Paul has. Now, if there was ever someone who was overly busy, it was the Apostle Paul. If there was someone who had an excuse for burden, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet, he, is, he is, has an emotional longing. He longs to see their face. He is not separated spiritually, but he is separated by distance here. William Law says this, this and this alone is Christianity, a universal holiness in every part of life, a heavenly wisdom in all of our actions, not conforming to the spirit and the temper of the world, but turning all worldly enjoyments into means of piety and devotion to God. There's a, an amazing illustration here back during the days of the Soviet Union. Uh, there was a, a Russian girl who'd spent months trying to get a visa to go visit some relatives in Canada. She finally got the visa. And if, you've ever, if you ever know anything about that system, it would take months and several bribes or whatever to get a visa like that. She got the visa. She went to Canada. She was there for three months. And all the Canadians expected her to defect. You know, why would you go back to that horrible oppression, that tyranny, the economic down, uh, depression that you have over in the Soviet Union? But they were surprised when she said, well, I'm ready to go back to, to Russia. I'm ready to go back. You know, they were shocked that she didn't want to defect. And they asked her why. And they said, and, and they said this. She said, in the West, here in Canada, in America, you, you focus on things. You focus on stuff. In Russia, we don't have things and stuff. We have people. And we focus on love and we focus on fellowship and we focus on community and we focus on relationship because we need each other. In the West, we are committed to making sure we don't need each other. In poor places and in Russia, they, they are committed to needing each other because they don't have all the stuff that we have. Does that ring true for us? I think in some ways it really does in so many ways. So fellowship is an absolutely essential component of any kind of church that's going to be pious, of any kind of individual who is going to be pious. And he says here, he goes on to say, I want to get together because I want to complete what's lacking in your faith. Have you ever read that and think Paul's kind of insulting them a little bit, kind of hurting their feelings? It, it, it really, that's not his purpose. You came here this morning because you recognized your faith was lacking. You came to church this morning because you wanted to grow your faith. You wanted to learn more. You wanted to worship with the people of God. You wanted to glorify God and increase your faith. And that's really what he's saying here is that, that you have got a good beginning, but we're going to be working on this for the rest of our lives here. So I want to come so that we can kind of help continue this great uh, work in the faith that we have here. So uh, uh, I like what uh, James Grant kind of sums up some of these thoughts here quoting also G.K. Chesterton, fellowship must include selfless service. We are prone to maneuver uh, uh, ourselves into the best situation for our own benefit, for our own life, our own family. That goes against the gospel logic of the Apostle Paul. We should embrace this type of self-denying, sacrificial love. G.K. Chesterton once said, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. We're, our problem is not normally self-awareness, is we're just consumed with ourselves. And um, that's a natural bent, but it's something that has to be kind of beat out of us in many ways. 
William Law says this, if you, if you hear stop and ask yourself why you're not as pious as the early Christians were, your own heart would tell you that it is neither through ignorance nor through inability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. So part of the principle here, the reason why Paul continues to, to, to mention faith and love and prayer and fellowship is because we have to be deliberate about all these things. It's unnatural in our flesh to pursue these things. Reflecting on the Apostle Paul's point in verse 8, how we really live, Rick Phillips says this, What are you doing to seek significance and meaning? Are you seeking it in the workplace? Is it, good to you, uh, it is good to use your talents and training, especially if we can work other value of others. Are you seeking fulfillment in relationships? The love we experience in family, marriage, and friendships is valuable and worthwhile. But these and other earthly fulfillments do not compare with the purpose and meaning of offering your life in service to the reigning Jesus Christ. Whatever you do in faith, including fellowship, prayer, love... The Lord's going to be magnified and the Lord is going to reward you and bless you. And you will find a satisfaction that you've not known before. Charles Spurgeon said this, Love to Jesus is the basis of all true piety. And the intensity of his love will ever be the measure of our zeal for his glory. Let us love him with all of our hearts. And then diligent labor and consistently living will be sure to follow. Our ambition no matter what the world says about that term piety, our ambition is to be pious. We can achieve that if we embrace these four graces of piety, of faith, love, prayer, and fellowship. But it's going to take all of us working together to do it. But when we do, we would be as pleasing to the Lord as the Thessalonian church is to the Apostle Paul. That's a worthy goal. Father, I pray that you would help us especially in these areas that we are so often weak in. We don't pray the way we should. We don't love the way we should. Our faith is uh, marginal at times. And sometimes, frankly, we just avoid fellowship. We just, we just don't feel up to it. We understand there's seasons for these kind of things, but we also know, Lord, that that is your expectation. So I pray, God, that you would help us to ramp up, ramp up in our lives a, a deliberateness about faith and love and prayer and fellowship. And help us to be devoted to one another and to care about one another. Uh, and to truly not just claim to be the family of God, but also to love like the family of God should love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.